I wonder how much we know our Bibles, how well we know the Word of God. The person that we're going to be looking at today is a guy named Ezra. And, uh, oh, kids can go. There they go. Boop, 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 boop. Anyway, uh, Ezra is where we're at in our study of the Ezra-Nehemiah books. Last week, we looked at a guy whose name starts with a Z. What was it? Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel. That's a fun name, right? Uh, but this week, we're looking at Ezra. Ezra kind of comes into the story around Ezra chapter 7. And one of the first things that we learn about this man named Ezra is that he knew the Bible. He knew the Hebrew Bible, the Torah, the books of Moses. He knew them, and he loved them, and he lived them out. And I want to start today by just acknowledging that and saying, isn't that a great thing to be known for? Wouldn't that be a fantastic reputation to have? To just, I know the word of God. It's important to me. I live it out. And when people remember you, they say, you know what stands out the most about this person? Their faithfulness. How much they sought the Lord. How well they knew the scriptures. Kind of like our children know their Bibles better than the adults. But this is Ezra. We know that he's a priest, and he's a teacher, and he's known for loving the word of God. And we're going to see today that he moves to Jerusalem with uh, money to rebuild uh, the temple, to participate in the rebuilding effort. Last week we saw Zerubbabel come in and begin that effort, uh, and Ezra's going to come in uh, as well. When we look at Ezra chapter 7, that's where we're going to be hanging out, so you're going to open your Bibles to Ezra chapter 7 and 8. We're going to kind of scan through those and then spend more of our time in chapters 9 and 10. But chapter 7 begins with a phrase, after these things. So we heard all about Zerubbabel and the building efforts there, and then it says, after these things, which could lead us to believe that Ezra comes right after Zerubbabel. Like, they built the temple, they had this worship, first Passover ever, and then the next day, Ezra shows up. But that's not actually what happens. Ezra comes to Jerusalem like 60 years after Zerubbabel. A lot of time has passed. I built this little timeline to, to show you so you guys can catch up. Um, this before uh, Babylon conquered Jerusalem, the Israelites were becoming less and less effective. Their kings were becoming more and more corrupt. And in 586, 587 BC, that's the time that Babylon conquered Jerusalem and they kicked most of the Jews out. And they said, you're not going to be here anymore. We're in charge. And they go into exile. Uh, and then there's a change of power when the Persians conquer the Babylonians in 539. And this is where we picked up last week, where Zerubbabel gets permission by Cyrus to go back and build in Jerusalem. They're allowed to return home. The completion of the temple, which we heard about last week, is around 515 BC. So remember all the delays and all the, the stalling and, and people pressing through and continuing the building? Well, it seems like it was completed in 515. And now... Ezra, which is where we're going to pick up the story. This is around uh, like 458 B.C., so a lot of time has passed. Like we said, Zerubbabel's construction project focused mainly on the temple complex itself, like the, the, the doorways and the, the sacrifice areas and the, the complex. Next week, we're going to look at Nehemiah, who comes in in a later time, and he's going to say uh, work on the walls of Jerusalem, the, the rebuilding efforts for the walls surrounding the city. And today we're going to look at Ezra, and his, build, his rebuilding is kind of a different rebuilding than Zerubbabel and Nehemiah. It's more of a rebuilding of the heart of the people. I want you to put yourself in Ezra's shoes for a minute. Imagine that you are this devout Israelite. You love the Lord, you love the Torah, you love to study it, and then you get this opportunity to go back to Jerusalem. 
basically you get this government grant that says, hey, you, you can go back and we're going to fund this and we're going to help you. You can put a team together and you can go back and you can serve in the temple. This is exciting news for Ezra. This is an opportunity of a lifetime. So in chapter 8, we read about the preparations that he makes. He does put this team together. He gets going on this adventure. He takes it super seriously. He recruits a long roster of people to serve as attendants in the temple for the sacrifices and the prayers and all the things that need to happen uh, for the worship uh, at the temple. You consecrate expensive items that were donated to the temple treasury. Uh, this is something we read about in chapter 8 as well. And then Ezra organizes this fast for the whole company of travelers so that everyone humbles themselves before the Lord. They prepare to go to Jerusalem in the right way. And so all that is done, and then you get to Jerusalem, and you're so excited, and you have this great anticipation for what's going to happen there, and then this is what you find when you arrive. Chapter 9. After these things had been done, the leaders came to me, to Ezra, and said, the people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, and they have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders of, and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak. I pulled hair from my head and beard, and I sat down appalled. And then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. So the Israelites had about 80 years back in Jerusalem, back to their homeland, back to rebuild the temple. And what did they do with it? They made the same mistakes that ended them up in exile in the first place. They're disobeying God's commands, and they're doing whatever they feel like doing. We see in this that the people of God may have rededicated the temple, but they haven't rededicated their hearts to the Lord. At this point, I'm going to take a little sidestep, a teachable moment here, to say, you might be wondering, what's the big deal about intermarrying with other nations? Why is this such a problem. We read this and we say, oh, they've been unfaithful. Well, what have they done to be unfaithful? Well, they married these people from the surrounding territories. We might read that and go, so? What's, what's wrong with that? By today's standards, to say you can only marry this certain person who is like us, who is from our own race, it doesn't sit well with us. That's, that's a racist attitude. And so when we read this story, we might come in with our modern ears and say, that just doesn't seem right. I don't get what the big deal is about. So let's talk about that for a minute. First of all, we need to remember that back in this culture, marriage was less about personal fulfillment and it was more about practical considerations like social security. Who's going to provide for me? How am I going to have children who will carry on the family farm or the family business? And it's also about solidifying social relationships with people for your own safety. You're going to marry this guy's son so that he and I can continue to do business together. It was a lot more of a practical arrangement. You would not hear people during this time at weddings say things like, you complete me. <laughs> I remember the first day we met, we stayed on the phone and we talked all night. It was like I was floating on air. You don't get those kinds of sentiments 
at weddings in the ancient Near East. But you do get sentiments like, uh, okay, so now you owe me a thousand sheep and I'm going to let you graze your goats on my land, which is admittedly a lot less romantic, but it's a lot more practical. It was helpful for survival during this time. So it's kind of like merging two businesses together, which is fine as long as those two businesses share the same values and interests. But in this case that's described here, they don't have the same values. The problem was that the Jewish people were assimilating to pagan practices of the foreign people. This is specifically mentioned uh, in verse 1 of the chapter that we just read. They said, they have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring people with their detestable practices. It doesn't describe here what the detestable practices are, but you can read about them in Deuteronomy and uh, other places of the Israelite history. And those descriptions say that the people are doing things like making idols, which, is that okay with God to make idols? No, that's one of the Ten Commandments. You're not supposed to do that. Specifically requested to not make idols. Worshiping other gods was another problem, another one of the Ten Commandments you're not supposed to do. They would participate in child sacrifice. Nobody thinks that that's okay. Uh, they practice divination and consulting with the dead. These are the kinds of things that God is saying, I don't want you to mess with that. These things are going to draw you away from me. I'm wanting to draw you closer to me. So don't do them. And you might be thinking about this and going, yeah, but what about the story of Ruth? Remember Ruth? Wasn't she from Moab? Wasn't that one of those detestable practice places? That story seemed to be, seemed to work out pretty good, right? That's a good point. The thing about Ruth is that instead of Ruth having Naomi and Boaz drawn away from God and becoming Moabites and practicing these things that are displeasing to God, Naomi, or Ruth is somebody who becomes an Israelite. She says, Naomi, I'm going to go and I'm going to be with you. And she marries Boaz and she becomes in line with God's wishes. And that's why this story is so treasured uh, in the Bible and in the, the Jewish history. It's a kind of exception, but the principle here you can see. It's not about being drawn away from God. It's about being drawn closer to God. This is what he wants. Another thing I want to mention is that intermarriage, which, as we pointed out, was forbidden by God, it's just another particular form of waywardness that I think reveals an underlying disobedience of the people. If it wasn't disobeying by marrying foreigners, it would have been breaking some other command that they didn't feel should apply to them. God said, don't do this, but I feel like I want to do this, so I'm going to do what I want. It's a rebellious heart attitude that says, I know better than Yahweh. God wants that, but yeah, I want this. It's the problem with the state of their heart. And if we think about this, I think it's a state of the heart that we can identify with sometimes. And maybe part of the reason we don't like this prohibition against intermarrying is not just that we don't fully understand the ancient culture. I think maybe we as free Americans don't like any concept that seems to limit our freedoms. We have an attitude that says, I can marry whoever I want. You can't stop me. I can do whatever I want with my body, with my money, with my time, with my screen. And that's a heart condition that we need to be honest about and identify when we see it in Scripture if that applies to us as well. And I just want to say, as far as I understand what following Jesus means, Jesus can never be the Lord of your life if the things that he asks you to do always need to be okayed by you. If it always needs to fit in your sense of right and wrong or preconceived thoughts and plans that you've made for yourself. I think the Bible is understandable, and the things that God wants us to do make a lot of sense. 
But sometimes we don't even bother investigating that far. We just say, oh, but I don't feel like it. Or, ah, it just doesn't seem right. Or, it's easier to do what I've already decided I'm going to do. And we're unwilling to submit to God's authority in our life. The way of following Jesus is saying, Jesus, you're the Lord of my life. So I'm going to start with, what do you want? I saw a cool example of this a few weeks ago here in this church. I've been on sabbatical, so I wasn't here for the first part of the summer. But there's been a 9 a.m. class that's been studying uh, biblical interpretation and women's roles in the church. A lot of you have been a part of this class. And one of the weeks was just an open mic time for the women of the congregation to share their experiences in church and their understandings of what God calls us to and how they interpret the scriptures. Uh, and it was recorded, so I got to listen back to it. You can go on our website, you can listen to this recording as well. But it was just people passing the mic and saying, you know, this is, this is my story. This is my understanding. Uh, this is how I read the scriptures. I listened to that, and at one point during that hour, there was a young lady who took the microphone, and she said, I'm glad we're studying this issue because I just want to do what God wants, even if that means doing more or less than I'm already doing. And I heard that, and I said, that's a great attitude. That's a great posture. That's a great condition of the heart. It's another way of saying, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I thought that was pretty cool. Back to Ezra. So what does Ezra do when he gets there and he finds out that the people have been unfaithful? Well, he prays. And it's a cool prayer. It's a prayer of confession, but it's also a prayer of hope. Listen to what Ezra prays. Uh, chapter 9, verse 6. I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you, because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings, as it is today. But now, for a brief moment... The Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. Though we are slaves, our God has not forsaken us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins. And he has given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. Notice a couple things here about Ezra's prayer. One, he prays we instead of they when he's talking about the failure of the people. Ezra himself is not guilty of intermarriage, which was forbidden, but the people are. And yet, Ezra is part of the people, and so he brings a confession for the sin of the people before God. And he includes himself in that group. I think that's kind of good. I think that that's that's biblical, and it's something that we sometimes get away from. This points to an often overlooked truth that the sin of the individuals affect the whole community. A lot of times we don't acknowledge that, or we won't even admit that. Our modern individualist thought is that as long as I have my act together, then I'm good. But that's not what we see in Scripture. And maybe churches should consider the old adage, a chain is only as strong as its weakest link, and think of ourselves more as a people, as a group, as a family, than just a collection of individual associates. And maybe in doing so, we can break down the walls that separate your problems from my problem. So it's a good example from Ezra. Second thing I want to point out about his prayer is that though there has been unfaithfulness, even chronic 
unfaithfulness, there is still hope for change. And you hear this in phrases from his prayer, like, God has not forsaken us. God has granted us new life. Coming before God and confessing our wrongdoing can be a really, really scary thing. I mean, imagine this. You are bringing yourself before the God, the creator of the universe, the most powerful force anybody can ever fathom. And you throw yourself down at his mercy. And you say, God, it's true. We have been unfaithful. I have been unfaithful to you. That's scary. God could do whatever he wants. He could crush you. He could ignore you. He could write you off for the rest of your life. That's got to be terrifying. But I don't think Ezra was scared when he brought this prayer before the the Lord. And you know why? Because he knows his Bible. He knows the God of Israel. He knows God's track record of faithfulness. He knows that God recognizes a contrite heart and that God is forgiving. So he comes not just with confession and not just with honesty and not just with, yes, it's true what we've done and we're wrong, but with this hope that, God, there's still the second chance. Have mercy on us. Let us rebuild your temple the way that it needs to be rebuilt. And in our lives, I think we need to have that confidence before the throne of God as well. The Hebrew preacher writes this in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is able to, unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Ezra's honest and hopeful and faithful prayer is heard by the people, and it's kind of contagious. What he's doing starts to catch on. And so what do the people start doing when they hear Ezra's prayer? They join him. This is chapter 10, verse 1. While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children, gathered around him, and they too wept bitterly. Uh, Then Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Rise up. This matter is in your hands. We will support you. So take courage and do it. The people agree that something is wrong. They own up to it, and they say, let's start making changes. I think that we need examples in our lives of people like Ezra, who are not just faithful when people are looking. They're not just faithful in good times, presentable times, but we need people who are faithful even in times of sin, people who will own up to their wrongdoing, and people who will pray on behalf of the sins of the community as well as their own personal rebellions. And we get that in Ezra. And he's remembered for his faithfulness. A weird thing about the book of Ezra, though, is how it ends. Chapter 10 is the last chapter in Ezra. And you get this repentance. The people say, we're going to make changes. We, we get it. Let's, let's change. Good. 
But that's not it. There's sort of like this, there was extra space left on the parchment or something. And they said, oh, you know what we should do? Let's just write down all the names of the people who sinned against God. Let's record their names for all time. And that's how, that's how Ezra chapter 10 ends. It's just a list of names of all the people who are guilty of intermarriage. This guy did it. Oh, yeah. And then this guy did it. Oh, and then this family was all about it. And that's recorded in the most, the, the most sold most widely distributed book of all time. How would you like for your name to be written? <laughs> Ezra is remembered for his faithfulness, but there's some people in here whose names are written down and remembered for their unfaithfulness. Wouldn't that be horrible? Wouldn't that be a terrible fate and a terrible legacy to leave behind? Oh, I would not be okay with that. And you can read their names. They don't want you to, but they're there. I think some, in some ways in our lives, we are terrified of that happening. Maybe not specifically in this case, like a, a written down in a book, but I think we don't want our sins to be exposed. We don't want people to find out what we've really done or who we really are. We spend so much of our time and energy putting on this front that says, I've got it all together. I'm like Ezra. I'm somebody that's worth listening to, somebody that's worth following and we downplay the failures. We try to hide them. We try to cover them up. We look down on people who are guilty of the same things that we are in an attempt to make ourselves look better. But we don't have to do that. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus comes along and he says, I know about all this stuff. I know who you are. I don't know who you're trying to fool. I know about these things. And you want to say, yeah, but let me explain it. This is, this is why Jesus goes, no, I know why, too. And you can't justify it. Because your names are written down there in the book of the guilty. Just like Ezra chapter 10. They could write our names right next to them. And we say, but that's not how I want to be remembered. And Jesus says, that's not who I think you really are. And that's not how I'm going to remember you. Though your name may be written here, I'm not going to look at that book. I don't care about what this list says because I've added your name to a different list. I have written your name in the names of the people who are in the book of life, the people who will see the face of God, to my faithful servants who have said yes to following me, and you are mine. So I want to end this morning by inviting us all to participate in a prayer of confession, acknowledging the fact that we have not lived up to the standard that Christ has set for us, that we have not done everything that we should do, that we have done things that we shouldn't do, but that there's forgiveness in Christ because of this. I want us to close out this morning by following the example of Ezra and doing so in the confidence of Christ. I want us to confess our sins together, not wondering whether or not God will forgive us or whether or not God will forget our name, but with confidence that in Christ Jesus there is forgiveness, there is redemption, and there is new life. So I want to invite you to stand and pray this prayer with me. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. 
we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways. To the glory of your name, amen.